So we're going to begin a study on 1 Peter. And I have entitled this series of sermons on 1 Peter, Hardship and Holiness. In this letter that Peter has penned, these are the two themes that he primarily addresses. Hardship and suffering connected with being holy in a world that is hostile to holiness. Holiness leads to suffering in this world. If you want to be a holy person, people aren't going to like it in the world. But the great thing about being a Christian and pursuing holiness is that even though it might be difficult, there might be hardships, there might be suffering attached to that, God has promised that even the hardships and the suffering will be used to make us more holy. We'll expand on that idea in a few minutes. But I chose 1 Peter. Uh, what a timely book for us to study in the current state in which we find ourselves today in our country. Our nation is hostile to holiness and becoming increasingly more hostile. Uh, and I do not want you as your pastor to be surprised or discouraged at the trials that may very well come upon you in the coming days. And also, I don't want us to compromise our holiness. A holy church is the need of the hour. The temptation ever before us is to compromise our holiness, especially when it costs us, especially when it causes us hardship, which very well could be the case. One of the reasons our society has decayed morally is because American Christianity has grown soft and worldly, compromising and weak. The witness, the testimony that we have put forward has not been a good one. And in this letter, Peter's pointing us in the right direction. So it's a, a good, timely letter for us to study. May the Lord impress the message of this letter upon each of our hearts here today and in the coming weeks. So let's take up the reading. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, which is the salutation, the greeting of the letter. And there's a couple of things that we can glean from this uh, greeting. God's Word says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Who are you? That's a question many people today struggle to answer. Part of the problems we see in our culture today are the result of an identity crisis. Now, an identity crisis is a psychologically a psychological term, and it just means uh, uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity is not clear or becomes insecure. The term was first coined by a, a psychologist, Eric Erickson, to describe a developmental period, usually associated with adolescence. Adolescents are trying to figure out who they are in the world. You know, they're, they're coming out of childhood, pushing on towards adulthood, and they're looking to find their place in this world. Who am I? What's my role in society? You know, what am I supposed to do 
now that I'm growing up. They're, they're forming an identity at that stage in life. But, as we see all throughout our society, the term can apply to adults as well. We can have an identity crisis, typically due to a change in our expected aims in life or role in society. For example, we might lose our job. A person who loses his job uh, might have an identity crisis because their role in society has been taken away and they have to find something different to do. Or uh, maybe uh, you go through a divorce. You've invested your life in a relationship, a family, and that's crumbled. And now you wonder, who am I? What's my place in the world? What am I supposed to do? And who am, who am I supposed to, how am I supposed to live? Or just moving from one stage of life to the next, you, you become an empty nester. You've invested your life in your children, they've grown up and they've moved along, and, and now your life is very different from the days when you were raising children. Now you're a grandparent, possibly. And that's a different role. So these can all be identity opportunities for identity crisis. Usually people who run through the natural stages of life move from one to the next because they know what's coming and they kind of expect it without any kind of bump in the road. But when something unexpected comes, it usually shakes us up a little bit, some more than others. Now in our culture today, because the family has broken down, traditional values have been pushed to the side, there's a real problem with identity crises. See, our, our strong sense of identity and self and who we are and where we're going is largely given to us by our family and the values that are, are placed upon us. Traditional values gave a, a slot to people. You know, if you were a, a man, you knew that one day you would become an adult and you would have a job, uh, you would uh, ha be the breadwinner, or you'd have a family and children, you'd raise them, they would do the same, you'd ha they would have children, you'd become a grandparent, your role would shift a little bit, and it, w and it happened cycle after cycle after cycle. But now in today's society, where there's broken homes and divorces and step-parents and kids shuffling from one place to the next or two moms or two dads or whatever's going on, anything goes in our day, what is our values? Who are we? Who am I? That's the question that a lot of people struggle to answer. And so what seems to happen, because we value youth, no one wants to grow up. You know, you look at all the advertisements on TV, you look at the magazines, everything that our culture pushes is materialism and being young and youth and, and the values of youth. And, and no one wants to grow up. And so people don't take on the identities they need to take on to be productive members of society. And so the trend these days is to create your own identity, to be whoever you want to be. And anything goes in our culture, doesn't it? You can be anything you want to be. I saw a story of a person this week who has decided to become a lizard. They have tattooed, literally tattooed their entire body with scales, dyed the color of their eyes, split their tongue to make it forked, inserted horns in their head, and is living like this. And this person is the dragon person. 
And that's not the only example of this sort of outrageous behavior. This person has created themselves an entirely new identity. And you see that through the body modification and tattooing, why that's become so prolific in our society, because people want to create their own identity. Or, in the case of plastic surgery, they want to hang on to an identity. I don't want to get older. I don't want to grow up. I want to look younger. So they go and get their lips done or cheeks pulled back or look like Kenny Rogers. But there's so many options out there now. And too many options just creates confusion, doesn't it? Remember when, well, I don't, many of you don't remember, but some of you who are older, like myself, when we were kids, there wasn't that many options on tennis shoes, sneakers. You know, there were Keds and Converse and maybe some others. And you didn't have to spend a lot of time shopping. You just went and you picked one of the two. That was it. Now, you, you know, the, the, the options are limitless. And I've literally gone to, you know, these stores where they're just wall of shoes. Where do you even begin? It takes hours to sort through it and figure out what you want. You think about that in our world where there's no values. There, there's no one pointing in the right direction. And, and, the, and so people are choosing all kinds of things. All kinds of identities. And often going in the wrong direction. It can happen in the church as well. With all this going on the wor- in the world, we even in the church can become confused, but the Bible brings us back to who we are. Who we truly are in Christ. And that's what... Peter is doing here, not, not, not consciously, but because he's addressing a particular people and, and how he addresses them, he's telling them who they are. Exactly who they are. Verses 1 and 2 gives us a, a clear instruction on, on who the crea- uh, Christian is in two ways. One, in relation to the world, and two, in relation to God. And that's my two points today. The Christian in relation to the world and the Christian in relation to God. And as we live in the world, it's important that we know who we are if we're going to endure hardship and be holy people. Well, verse 1, Peter identifies his readers as elect exiles, as it is translated here. In the Greek, it's a little little different. Those two words, elect and exiles, They're not nouns, they're adjectives. They're descriptors of these people. Um, You might more accurately translate it chosen sojourning ones. or You could say they're chosen exiles or they are uh, the elect journeymen or elect sojourners. That's a noun and an adjective and switching them back and forth. These two th- the reason I'm pointing this out is that the, these two descriptors, elect and exiles, or sojourners, chosen sojourners, elect exiles, he's holding both of these words up as descriptive of these people equally. They're elect and they're exiles. One speaks to our relationship to the world and one speaks to our relationship with God. And I want to take these in turn. First, Christians in relation to the world, he uses the term elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, if you look just down the next chapter, verse 11, he uses the word, the similar words. Uh, he uses the terms sojourners and exiles. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now the word translated exiles or sojourners means to stay in a place as an alien. Not like a Martian type alien, but as an illegal, uh, like we use the term illegal alien. A foreigner, someone who is not from that place. So to stay in a place as an alien or a foreigner or a stranger. And the suggestion here is that that person, uh, that person's stay is transitory. It's not permanent. Now, in politics today, of course, as I just uh, mentioned the word illegal alien, there's a lot of talk about that. It's a political talking point. We talk about refugees. These are people who have either left their home country or have been driven out of their home country and they've gone to a new place. But the, situa- the situation is that they are planning to stay in those places. They're better or safer places than what they left. They want to stay there. And, of course, in our, the, the debate is that some people don't like that. But the word in our text is not this picture of an illegal alien. The picture we get in 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 is that of people who are displaced from their home country for a time, but their hope is to return to their home one day. They're just temporarily out of pocket. They're temporarily away from their home. And the word here presents Christians as men and women who have no country of their own on this earth. They are simply temporary residents. And for this reason, they are not to allow themselves to be shaped by the things which largely determine life on this earth. Namely, chapter 2, verse 11, the passions of the flesh. They are to be different because they're not citizens of this world. They're citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippians. The alien status of Christians is further underlined and stressed by the use of the term dispersions. We, uh, we as Christians and the people to whom this letter is addressed were the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now that term dispersion was a, a very specific term in the Old Testament. Uh, referred to the time when the people of Israel, especially the people of Judah, were conquered by the Babylonians and they were sent away into exile. The Babylonians had this policy, their, their foreign policy was to conquer people and then ship them off other places. They'd conquer one from here and put them there and conquer one from here and put them there. And they mixed people all together and the idea was that if, if you didn't know your neighbor, you weren't likely to hang out with them and get to know them and start a coup or a rebellion against the, the main country. So the, the Israelites people of Judah especially, they were sent away into exile. They were scattered. The word means to sow. So God sowed them all over the world for 70 years until they, were, they came back to the promised land under Ezra and, then, and Nehemiah. Now, the term is also picked up in the New Testament. You see it in Acts chapter 8 when the persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the believers from Jerusalem were dispersed into Judea and Samaria. They were, they were uh, uh, scattered. The good thing is they took the gospel with them and the church grew through that displacement. But these people longed to return home. They wanted to come back and they were allowed to. 
See, in the New Testament, this term dispersion is used to, uh, to describe the church longing and hoping for the day when the Lord will return and dwell together with His people in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the Christian's true home, the Christian's true hope. That's who we are, that's, that's where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The Christians have been dispersed through the world where we reside as aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles, for a time. In the meantime, as we live here, uh, we need to remember that, that. What do we do as temporary residents of this world in which we live, of this earth as we know it. Well, I think we can pick up the words of, of Jeremiah. You know, when Jeremiah, uh, he was the prophet during the time when the exile came, they were sent, many of them, to Babylon and other places. And there were false prophets in that day who told them, look, children of Israel, don't even pack your bags. God's got this. You know, just keep the boxes in the corner because God's going to come. He's going to sweep down and he's going to rescue us and we're going to be back in Jerusalem uh, in no time. And And Jeremiah wrote a letter to all the exiles, a word from the Lord. And he said, oh no, these are false prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Jeremiah 29, uh, one of the most uh, uh, taken out of context verses in the Bible is in here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes. I will, be, oh, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You see... He's gonna, there's going to be a time of exile. And that prophecy, of course, applied to uh, Judah, Israel, back in those days, in the 70-year exile. But like all prophecies, there's a, a bigger and greater fulfillment, and it replies to the church. We are in exile. But the Lord has a plan to restore the fortunes of his church in the new heavens and new earth. So in the meantime, we are to live our lives in holiness. We are to multiply. We are to seek the welfare of the city, the good of the places where we live, to do good. 
The church will be blessed if it does so. So we need to remember that as, our, uh, first of all, our identity. How do we relate in this world? We are strangers and exiles, but we're involved in the world in which we live. We're to make disciples, Jesus commanded us. Multiply the church, multiply our families, point people to Christ, etc. And that's the Christian in the world today. We're exiles. We need to remember that. It's a temptation to become very much invested in this world, in our country, in our state and place and home, and make that our identity, our primary identity. But the Christian's primary identity is an exile here. We want, the, we want our place to flourish, but we hang on to it with loose hands because we know this world is not our home. Now secondly, the, that's the Christian in relation to the world, the Christian in relation to, to God. Now the complete sentence describes Christians as elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In verse 2, what we see here is all the, the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, involved in the salvation of sinners. The Father purposes the saving work for those whom he foreknows. The Son accomplishes the work by his blood. And the Spirit applies the work of Christ to sinners such as we are. And that's the Trinity at work. Those who are believers in this world, God has chosen them. They are elect, foreknown, before the foundation of the world. And that foreknown, as we learned on Wednesday night, does not mean foresight. God didn't look down the annals of time and see that you were going to choose him and and have faith in him, and therefore you're the elect. No, before you ever did anything, before you were ever even born, if you're a Christian, God chose you. That's the truth here. God chose you. He decreed it. And we don't know who was decreed to be the elect and who's not decreed to be the elect, but that's a truth the Bible mentions over and over and over again. It's completely through his grace his mercy is completely an act of His will for us. Yes, we do respond to what Christ has done for us. But the fact of the matter is that God is behind it. The Father is behind it. And the Son has executed the plan for us. He saves people from sin. And that's who we are in Christ. We have been saved through the sprinkling of His blood, through His, through his death on the cross. He has saved us to be holy, to free us from the guilt of sin. See, he paid the penalty for sin so that we might be freed from the guilt of sin. We're forgiven. There's no more guilt that rests upon us. And not only has he freed us from the guilt of sin, he's freed us from bondage to sin. We're no longer dominated by sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to God. And so we all of a sudden now can please God and, and grow in obedience to Christ through the work of the Spirit, sanctifying us, making us holy. That's why he saved us. He saved us so we would be holy. He saved us so we wouldn't be guilty of sin, so we wouldn't be in bondage to sin, and one day he's going to free us from the, even the presence of sin. Sin is temporary for the Christian. 
So why do we keep sinning? Why do we continue to pursue sin? As Hebrews, we looked at a few weeks ago, those weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, that we love. We're called to be holy. That's the purpose for which he saved us. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. For you to be holy, set apart, and pure. Romans 6, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end eternal life. Or Hebrews 12, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, God saved us to make us holy so that we could be with him. Because he's holy. And if you're not holy, or if you're not growing in holiness, then you can have no assurance that you've actually been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, washed and forgiven. Because if that's why he saved us, to make us holy... And if we're not holy, then something's wrong. And that doesn't mean that in the Christian life we'll have ups and downs. We might fall into temptation. We, we can certainly stumble, uh, but we continue to get back up. We continue to run to Christ. We, we continue to repent of our sins. The first of Luther's 95 Theses was basically all of life is repentance. As we live through this, this, uh, this age, this life in which we are living in, we continuously repent. The Christian continuously repents. For example, let me illustrate it this way. You might go to college. You might get a degree in engineering. You might be an honor student with a 4.0 average. But if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's, you're not an engineer. You're a burger flipper with an engineering degree. An engineer is somebody who does engineering work. And if you're a Christian and you're not holy at all, you're not a Christian. Because that's why you were saved. doesn't mean you're perfect, I'm not saying that. But you ought to be growing in holiness. And that's what this letter is going to be pointing us to. How can we be holy, and, and how can we uh, endure hardship, maintaining our holiness, and growing in holiness? That's what's going to be happening and working, how, how it works for us. We need the grace and peace of God to be multiplied to us. You know, we, who are we? You know, that's the question we began with asking. Well, as Christians, we're strangers, we're exiles, this world's not our home, but the call of the hour is to be holy in the midst. It's easy, it has been easy, to be in America and to be very comfortable, to be a moral person, to be a good person, to go to church. Uh, you can do all those things freely and comfortably and still not be a Christian. And we need to check ourselves, as Paul said, to see if we're in the faith. Are we running to Christ? Are we turning from sin? Are we resting in his work alone to save us? Or are we just living a cultural, comfortable Christianity? My fear is that as, as the hardships increase, in our increasingly hostile environment in which we live, hostile to Christianity and hostile to the Christian values, that those people who don't have a real faith are going to fade away. They're going to, they're going to disappear. It's just too hard. They don't want to do that. 
That was the burden of the book of Hebrews. Those people were finding it difficult, and he was, he was encouraging, don't give up, endure to the end. If it's a false faith, in the times of hardship, when, when the heat gets turned up, the false faith will fade away. I want you to make sure you have true faith in these coming days when it might be very difficult to be a Christian. It might be very uncomfortable to be a Christian. So Peter is telling them, here's who you are, elect exiles. Uh, strangers on this earth, but made to be holy. And, and people who can make a change where they live by being holy. You know, that's, that's seeking the welfare to point people to the right way, to the truth, to Christ. We need grace and peace, as he says this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God convict us of our sin. That's grace. He's doing something to us. He's helping us to see and understand. May he grant us repentance. May he grant us that we, we desire holiness. And may he give us peace in the midst of our trials. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for your word. and It might cause us to examine ourselves, which would be a good thing, Lord. And where we've been comfortable and where we've made friends with the world, where we've compromised, where we have decided that we can just sin in secret without anyone knowing. Lord, we pray that we would be convicted of these things, that we would truly change. Lord, do your work of sanctification in us, we pray. Help us not to be false Christians, but to, to, to truly desire you and the holiness without which we won't see you. And Lord, thank you that you save us by your grace. It's not what we do, but what you have decreed, uh, how you have, are working in us. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the proper response to what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.